Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. John, I just put out on Twitter the definitive story of this morning, particularly for our global Wall Street audience, Tracy Alloway Behu and Sofia Hordiacosta with a definitive article on the derivative strategies that have led to this margin call. Ms. Alloway joins us right now, Bloomberg Markets Managing Editor. Down at the bottom, Tracy, of your article, you remind us that in 2008, Financial Ireland almost collapsed over a margin call, a busted derivative strategy. Is there any sense in this 2021 of the Irish agony of 2008? Well, I think you and Jonathan just laid out the scene pretty well there. So far, we haven't seen signs that this is really unnerving the wider market uh, most investors seem to be taking it in stride. I guess the question is, when you're looking at these kind of interlinkages in the financial system, like where, well, there are going to be more losses, right? We think there's more exposure out there. And then the question is, why did the prime brokers have this different reaction? So Jonathan alluded to that. You know, Nomura and Credit Suisse are saying that they have losses. Morgan Stanley hasn't said anything. Goldman seems to have managed it quite well. What did the prime brokers do differently that resulted in all these different, um, well, results? Tracy, is it still too early to tell about the way they've handled this? Is it still too early to draw any conclusions? I think that's right. I mean, one of the big outcomes of this might be additional scrutiny on derivatives deployed by hedge funds and uh, institutional investors. So this was a family office that seemed to have built up these huge positions. We're talking billions of dollars worth of total return swaps and uh, contracts for difference. But no one seemed to have really known about it or connected the dots, certainly not the prime brokers. Uh, most hedge funds are required to disclose their holdings um, if they're actually buying the stock. But if you're doing it through derivatives, it's basically a loophole that allows you to get tons of exposure without having to declare it. And so the question, I think, for regulators is going to be, how endemic is this in the financial system? And is there a possibility that it can be a disturbing force on the wider market? And of course, we've seen additional scrutiny on hedge funds already because of the Robinhood and GameStop scenario. So this is another uh, unflattering spotlight cast on um, hedge funds slash family offices. Tracy, from your perspective so far, and I ask this in a way that gives you enough room just to say I simply don't know, but from what you're looking at at the moment, do you find it strange about the amount of rope, so to speak, that this particular investment firm was given by prime brokers? <laughs> um, well, there is a question about risk management here. Uh, it seems to have been very, very large positions, and again, possibly positions in single stock. So there's a sort of whale effect there. The other question is, Bill Huang, of course, is famous for uh, insider trading. I think back in 2012 or 2014, I want to say um, it was a long time since then, mm -hmm. but lots of people are asking why the prime brokers felt right. comfortable extending this kind of financing. I mean, Tracy, I know that you've done interviews with Bobby Axelrod before of Billions 
and it's all great and fine, but you make the distinction between billions as entertainment, hedge funds, and a family office. Did this occur because a family office is different, that there isn't more of a community that can brace itself and break against too much leverage? Is what we're really talking about one guy made this happen? I mean, I think there's a point to be made there, but ultimately a family office isn't that different to a hedge fund, right? Um, okay. But there is a question. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, it's just... I, oh, Tracy, I think he just really does that. You know, you know how it works, Tracy. Tom just jumps in and says things, and you've just got to carry on talking. No, just keep on talking, <laughs> Tracy. You know, you're allowed to be rude. Wait, I was I mean, rude. A, family office, a family office is fairly identical to a hedge fund. It, mm. It's just that it can't really take outside capital. So uh, the disclosure requirements, you know, that regulators are going to be looking at, yeah. The idea that it acted by itself, I'm not too sure about that. Okay. I mean, what is true is that you have this big fund that seems to have all these interconnections with the rest of the market. Tracy Alloway, it's good to see Brilliant. you. As always, Bloomberg Markets Managing Editor. If you are a black bear from Maine, you get a job in accounting out of the University of Maine. Forty years ago, that's what Gerard Cassidy did. He is legendary at RBC Capital Markets, and we are thrilled to get his perspective because in my Rolodex, he's the only one that remembers the collapse of Continental Illinois out in Chicago. Gerard, let's cut to the chase. You and I have seen this before. Why is this debacle of this hedge fund different? Tom, I think thank you for having me uh, on the program. And I would say first, it's, it's the size. I mean, this is an enormous size hedge fund when you put it into perspective over the last 30 years. So when you think about long-term capital and what happened to them, and back in the late 90s, you might remember, you know, they weren't as large as what we're just seeing from this one uh, situation develop on Friday. And so to me, that's the implication is that we, you know, we allow or companies grow very quickly into the billions of dollars right. and they get very uh, large amounts of leverage. And as you know, leverage leads to problems when asset prices move very quickly. We've seen this lesson so many times before. And again, the leverage is extraordinary. Gerard, what does a bank actually do when this event occurs? What's happening this morning for Mr. Gorman? What's happening for the leadership of Nomura? the new management at Credit Suisse, how do they unwind a trading debacle, a prime brokerage debacle like this? Well, hopefully, Tom, that the assets involved that have to be liquidated aren't very illiquid because the more illiquidity that these assets may have, the greater the losses will be. We'll find out more this week as this story unfolds what exactly happened here. But the first thing that these, obviously, uh, management teams will do will go to seize collateral, They'll liquidate positions, and then unfortunately, in cases, in, in some of these cases, you're going to see losses, as I think uh, Nomura may have already announced, as well as Credit Suisse. So the first thing they do is seize the collateral, liquidate the account, and then follow up, hopefully, by uh, seizing other assets, if there are any other assets that they're permitted to go after to cover those losses. Gerald, I'll try and phrase this delicately because some of these banks don't fall under your coverage. So let's keep things <clears throat> as general as possible if I can so you're able to comment them on them in detail. What would it be that would take, say, a couple of banks 
to face significant losses and a couple of other banks that seem to say it's immaterial. Would it just be the size of exposure or is it something about the way they handled it when things started to blow up? Uh, Jonathan, I think it's, it's, it's both, but your first point is very well said, the size of exposure. So that, that to me is probably going to be uh, one of the real distinguishing uh, factors between uh, companies that have immaterial losses versus multi-billion dollar losses. But second, it's also the controls and procedures and the level of skill and experience of the people involved in handling the account. And so you may have people that have 15, 20 years of experience handling this account and therefore can move quicker or yeah. see the signs more clearly than a inexperienced person. Well, let's talk about this account. There's something about this particular account that generated a lot of competition. A lot of demand to have this client on the books, Jared, and that includes Goldman Sachs. And our latest reporting saying that compliance basically rejected this client again and again and again. And then something changed a couple of years ago. Jared, what's your take as an analyst to hear that this morning? That's a little disturbing that, you know, when you hear about a, an, an account opening that has been rejected more than once by the compliance department and eventually they, they do get to open the account. It obviously shows how aggressive um, certain companies are in trying to, you know, win new business. Uh, obviously, to grow their business, you, you grow with existing customers. We all know that. But also adding new customers in to the fold right. is very important as well. Gerard, a question, and, and I don't want to get you in trouble with RBC, but I think, you know, we've known each other long enough where we can ask this for our audience worldwide. The heart of the matter is a meeting where a manager says we're number four in blah, 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 and we need to be number two by September so we can bonus out and keep our jobs. Isn't that the heart of the matter in this repetitive reality of too much leverage leading to difficult losses? Tom, I think that has a real influence on it, no doubt about it. The, the so-called league tables, which are more in the investment banking area than the trading area. But these companies do pride themselves at being at the top of those tables. And I know when you look at the big broker dealers here in the United States, clearly they're not going to be happy being at the bottom or the lower portion of those tables. So there's that pressure there, no doubt about it. I, I don't disagree with you. Would you change buy, hold, sell on Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley? Not on this news alone. You know, this comes with the territory, and it sounds kind of glib, but it's truly the case because when you, when you think about what they're doing every day, this type of risk is there. And if you have the controls and procedures in place to mitigate the risk, which again we'll find out if that's the case, and we'll really uh, could separate these broker dealers like Morgan Stanley and Goldman from the others, if they are exposed and there's minimal loss or no loss, then that's obviously sets them apart from the people that took sizable losses. George, you know what question will be asked though this morning? One of the many questions is just how many Bill Huangs are out there right now. Yeah. And if you're overseeing the prime brokerage unit of any of these banks that fall under your coverage, what do you think they're doing right now? We're doing a full-scale reappraisal of every single client on the books. Are we looking for more Bill Huangs out there that we need to actually trim exposure to? Oh, I, I, Jonathan, I think they're definitely going to do deep dives to make sure that their books are in order. Um, as you pointed out, um, they want to make sure that you know there's not expo exposures like this to other customers. So you're right, there will always be. But I would also point out they do this regularly. You know, it's not one and done. Yeah. So they're constantly monitoring their prime brokerage accounts. But uh, maybe a more in-depth review is warranted 
considering what happened on Friday. Jared, it'd be rude of me to let you go without getting your top pick. What is it right now? Uh, Don, we're still we're pointing to Bank America. I think you guys talked about how strong the vaccinations were on, uh, this past week. Also, the employment numbers coming out Friday, which means this U.S. economy is really uh, geared up for some real strong growth. Bank America is the best way to play that. Jared, great to catch up, sir. Good to see you. Jared Cassidy there of RBC Capital Markets, head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy. Away from the story, David Kelly will join us. He's with J.P. Morgan Asset Management as their chief global strategist. He wouldn't know a derivative strategy if it hit him over the head, so he's lucky this morning he doesn't have to talk about this. What you can talk about, uh, David, this is so important, is given a boom economy, how your allocation, how your temperament at J.P. Morgan Asset Management changes. How do you adapt to a boom economy? Well, I think the first thing is you recognize that people have not fully priced in what's going on here. I mean, this is the calm before the surge. Uh, we're still looking at about 4% GDP growth in the first quarter. Nothing terribly exciting going on. Um, but what we're seeing is this rollout of vaccines. We're seeing this rollout of fiscal stimulus. You've got the president about to announce another proposal um, in uh, this week in Pittsburgh. Uh, and this is going to build to a lot of momentum as this year goes on. So um, I think the, the environment is going to heat up a lot more than is really priced into markets. That means higher interest rates. And what that really means is the rotation probably continues, the rotation from growth to value, the rotation from large cap growth to small cap value, the and perhaps uh, some continued rota rotation to international. I think all of that is still on the table, given the heating up in the in the economy that we expect over the next nine months. What you just said, I've also heard at BlackRock, David, that maybe this is all underappreciated still, that this data we're about to get is still going to be unexpected to some people. How do you gauge that in this market at the moment? Well, I think the, the real point is that people have not seen this before. I mean, we have not seen this magnitude of fiscal stimulus along with a full pandemic recovery. It's, it's completely unknown territory. So I don't think people have a good way of measuring what this is likely to do. But I think the important point is if you've got all the stimulus, it's going to only go in one of two places. It's either going to get push up real output or it's going to push up inflation. Um, and either of those uh, you know, uh, scenarios uh, you know, does benefit cyclical stocks. It does suggest higher interest rates. So I think one way or the other, we're going to get higher interest rates out of this. And I think that it's just because this is so new and there's still such uncertainty about how an economy recovers from a pandemic. I, that, I think that's why people are underappreciating it right now. David, that's the mystery of what's about to happen in the next couple of months is how people respond to the data we're about to see. What's your game plan? How do you think people will respond to the data we're about to see? The payrolls print, which could be huge this coming Friday. Yep. The inflation print, when the base effects start to kick in this month and next? Well, obviously, you know, you know people have to keep an eye on, on their tax exposure. But if you can rebalance to make sure you're not underweight value, to make sure you're not underweight international, to make sure you're not overweight the most, you know, the highest PE and the most exuberant sectors of the economy, because, you know, what, we, what we're seeing right now, you know, in the story you were just covering is to some extent a part of a much broader story, which is if you have a mismatch of lots of exuberance and, and lots of liquidity, you end up with excess leverage and bad things happen. And you can think of plenty of areas markets where people are too exuberant and that exuberance is being fed by low interest rates. And those low interest rates are going to go away over time. And I think that's what people really need to pay attention to here. Walk down the income statement, Dr. Kelly. I'm going to get revenue. I'm going to get organic revenue growth like I've never seen before. 
And into Q2, Q3, Q4, do we get margin compression down the balance sheet or does revenues just drift away? Which is it? I, I think the margin compression comes a little later. I mean, we're going to have such a surge yeah. in demand over the second, third, fourth quarters, first quarter of next year. At the same time, you know, I think the Fed has put out this forward guidance, which forces them to be, you know, easier than they really should be. And so I think rates will rise, but just a little slower. And and particularly because, you know, so many companies have locked in long-term financing, I don't think that squeezes margins too much. And we'll also see wage growth pick up. But again, it's going to take a while. These things lag a bit. So I think the real margin pressure is going to come in 2022, particularly as the economy then slows down again. I mean, what we've got right now is a crawl, then a surge, and then a normalization. It's that normalization later on in 2022, which I think will slow down profit growth. But for right now, profit growth looks extremely strong for this year. Here's the data point on my dashboard. David, when does David Kelly get back to the office? When does that happen? Um, I'm thinking middle of summer. I, I'm, middle of I'm summer. For summer what? 2024? 22, 21, 3, 4? 20, 21. I, I, want, 21. I, I want to get back to Manhattan. Good. And we say good morning to Mr. Diamond. David, thank you. David Kelly, JP Morgan Asset Management Chief Global Strategist. Right now on Suez, in our assumptions of hydrocarbons, is Stephen Shark of the Shark Report. He writes a hyper detailed inside baseball hydrocarbon report. I don't understand two thirds of it, but I do understand that Stephen Shark is encyclopedic on how oil moves around this world. How open seas, Steve Shork, are our open seas right now when we see Suez shut down or the tensions of the South China Sea? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And it's great to be here. Thank you. And indeed, with what we're looking at with Suez, we're talking about one-tenth of the global trade in seaborne oil uh, transits through the uh, Suez Canal. A good deal of that oil coming out of uh, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, so forth, uh, going to markets in Europe and in the United States. So with the blockage, uh, some I, I understand are poo-pooing it. They're saying it's only 10%. It's a de minimis amount relative to the global trade. Uh, I will disagree. Uh, so the question now is that uh, in a market that is as tightly traded as oil, any sort of disruption, let alone right. uh, one every 10 barrels, is not an well, insignificant event. Compare and contrast the South China Sea wrapping around the Straits of Malacca and up north of the Pacific Rim with Suez Canal. Yeah, the, these are, are significantly, uh, th those two points, uh, they're very narrow waterways where, and, and they're global trade routes. Uh, and they're two of the most important potential choke points for the global trade, not just in oil, but of course in all commodities. And I think that is really the story here uh, when it comes to oil, whether it's uh, Suez or South China Sea. South China Sea, Straits Malacca, of course, is extremely important because all of your demand growth for oil and for consumer goods is primarily being driven by Asia. So to that standpoint, uh, this, while the headline of Suez and so forth is a supply side story, the overarching story in the oil market has been and will continue to be for the foreseeable future on the demand side. And this is where the issue uh, really persists because we've got a bifurcated demand scenario here in the United States, the macroeconomic headlines we've been seeing have been very positive. Now, keep in mind that over the next month, when we get the uh, the ice storms and the debacle that we saw in the mid-continent in the power markets uh, last month, that's going to factor into the next batch of numbers. But overall, that's a one-off event. 
And the general trend is extremely positive for demand here in the U.S. And that's a great story. And it's bullish for commodities. On the other hand, you have the kind of sloppy rollout of vaccinations in Europe. You have parts of the European economy once again shutting down the yeah. fear of that contagion spreading. So uh, regardless of the supply, the supply situation will be fixed. Uh, in the foreseeable future, the big question now remains on the demand side. Stephen, I hope you can indulge me just a little bit. When it comes to commodities and oil, we're talking about tankers going through the Suez. Can we talk about container shipping just for a moment? I hope you can just weigh in on this because I think it's so important. Beyond what's happened in the last couple of weeks, what we saw coming into the new year was container shipping costs absolutely go through the roof. We've seen the same with air freight as well. Clearly, there was a massive demand slump 12 months ago, then a huge inventory rebuild and increased demand off the back of that. In your mind, Stephen, how long does it take to work out some of these kinks in the supply chain, work out some of this demand to be met with supply in the months to come? Yeah, absolutely, Jonathan. And to your point, uh, the numbers that we're seeing out of uh, you know, data being kept by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis with regard to, to your point, air freight travel and, uh, and shipping channels. I mean, the, the amount of goods being shipped on U.S. waterways, on U.S. flagged barges uh, is surging right now. And again, this goes to my thesis of a very strong demand picture here in the United States. But to your point, uh, demand is strong, but there's only so much of a, an ability of capacity to move these cargoes. For instance, when we look at the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles in Southern California, those are the two largest container points for TEUs. TEUs are 20-foot equivalent units. Basically, those are the metal boxes that you see on top of the evergreen uh, ship stuck in the Suez. That is a picture or a snapshot of the global trade. And when we look at these numbers, uh, and, and these numbers are very important here in the United States in the months of July and August, because that's all the goods coming into the ports of Southern California coming from Asia. And this is always a great bellwether for retail demand in the fourth quarter going into the holidays. And so when we look at these numbers, uh, we've been smashing numbers with the container flows coming into the United States beginning last summer. And those flows continue to the point where we have containers now, uh, hundreds of containers now anchored off the coast of Southern California because yep. there's no room in the inn. So to answer your question, while we've already been at this for going on nine months at, at this point, and there's no uh, uh, site uh, as to when this is going to end. So we've been in it for nine months. I'm going to double it. I'll say at least another nine months before wow. we can clear up this glut. Stephen, great to catch up and really important detail there. Stephen Shork there, the Shork Report founder and editor. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.